The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today comes from select verses of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Thank you, Shelley. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'd just like to add... uh, a brief remark to to what uh, Gift shared uh, about what happened this past week. Uh, you know, we were actually on vacation. We were out of town and uh, driving home when we got the news that 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 Buzz Carter had been lost in the woods. And so we just went directly to to Beeman Park to join everybody who was there on Sunday, and uh, it w- it was remarkable. Uh, was there Sunday, uh, went back uh, Monday morning as well for the search, and uh, when all was said and done, uh, roughly 10% of our church, about 350 people, showed up. About 350 people showed up, and, and this to me was just a lovely confirmation of some of the things that we've been talking about in these past few weeks about how essential the body of Christ is, of leaning in and prioritizing and center our lives, centering our lives around the body of Christ because n- nobody responds like the body of Christ when there is a need. Uh, the police actually who were, were um, uh, sort of orchestrating the whole search uh, said somewhere in the middle of the search that they have never in their entire lifetime, ever in their entire careers, seen this kind of support uh, for an effort like the one that they were making. And so I, I just want to say how, how proud I am of Christ Prez and also just how thankful I am to God for the local church. Um, 
Because one who was dead is now alive again. One who was lost is now found. And, and God used human beings to, to be part of that process and even to demonstrate to our city uh, what the community of Christ can be uh, in the world and for the world. And so we rejoice in that and look forward in whatever way we're going to hear from Buzz and Jicky. I imagine it will happen at some point. But thank you for being the church. Uh, so now pivot to Genesis, uh, which was just read by Shelley. We've been going through a series. This is number five of six. We're talking essentially about six practices for spiritual health under three headings. Uh, the first heading we covered was the heading of worship, uh, which in terms of practices means being fully present with the church every week and being fully present with Jesus every day. You can go back and listen to those sermons if you miss them. Uh, the second heading is connect. Uh, there are two practices under, under that. Uh, first, take every opportunity to gather with your group. And then secondly, befriend and bring in people who don't have a church. And uh, now we begin two weeks under the heading of serve, worship, connect, serve. And uh, under serving, we've got, we've got two practices as well. The first is to strengthen the church uh, by serving and giving. And then the second is to enhance flourishing by serving your work, your world, and people in need. So, um, so we're going to uh, focus specifically next Sunday on, um, on all of it except one part. And that one part we're going to focus on today, and that is what we're calling the first great commission. When God told human beings part of what it means to be human is to get to work. He said that in paradise. Um, you know, on Sundays we come together, and, and churches all over the world come together as uh, what theologians call the gathered church, and, and, and it's here on the Lord's Day, on Sundays, uh, where we, we come for community, we come for formation, we come for the nourishment that we need in order to be the scattered church the rest of the week. When we leave these doors, we go out as the scattered church into the world. And, and so in the days between today and next Sunday, for example, most of us are going to spend somewhere between 40 and 60 hours working on something. And some of us will be doing that for pay. Some of us will be doing that not for pay. Uh, if you're a full-time parent, for instance, you'll, you'll probably spend about twice that amount of time doing your work. Uh, and uh, our job here at the church is to nurture and cultivate a vision for what it means to be a disciple or follower of Jesus Christ in your work, and specifically how to think about your work, no matter, no matter what your work is. And, uh, and there are going to be three headings uh, under which I um, try to unpack what these scriptures from Genesis reveal to us, and those are that work is spiritual, that work is war, and the work, the work, is finished. Okay, so, so let's start first with, with this. Work is spiritual. Every conversation, for people of faith especially, every conversation about work should start with God himself because the very first verse of the Bible, the very first thing that God tells us about himself is that he is a worker, that he's a vocational being, especially a creator, an artist. 
It says in the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created. He created the heavens and earth. And, and uh, the 19th Psalm interprets that for us and reminds us of how the heavens declare the glory of God. And the 8th Psalm goes further and says, when I consider the heavens, and Lord, when I consider the work of your fingers, think about that word, fingers, when I consider the moon and the stars that God put together with his fingers that you've set in place, what is man that you care for him? Now, when you think of fingers with respect to work, your, your, your thought process might go to uh, the work of a painter or the work of a, a guitarist or a pianist, a musician or a seamstress, you know, kind of the fine, you know, careful, detailed work that, that the fingers are associated with and essential for. Or you might think about a mechanic or a surgeon or a dentist. All of them need, need to work well and with great skill with their fingers in order to succeed at what they do. So some of these finger vocations are uh, creative vocations, like the artist, the painter, the, the guitarist. Others are mending and healing vocations that look at either people, places, or things, or some combination thereof about putting it back together again. All of this kind of work, whether it's creative work or whether it's restoring and mending and healing work, it, it's all a, a, a way that we mirror and, 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 and become conduits for the image of God in the world. So, um, so this, this title for the sermon that we, we've, we've given this sermon, the first Great Commission. Okay, so when we, when we think of the Great Commission, we think about what we're going to cover next week, you know, where Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations and so on. But there was a commission that happened before that, that God didn't just give to Christians, but to the whole human race. When God finished creating heaven and earth, he decided that he wanted a staff. He wanted to have a staff. He wanted to have workers. And he says to Adam and Eve and through them to the whole human race, now tend what I have created. Tend to my garden. Exercise dominion over it, over the fish, over the birds, the livestock, the bugs, the earth, every living thing. So a few things, just a few thoughts that, that I think we can take out of, of this when it comes to the work that God has staffed us to do in his world. The first is that work is a lot like oxygen. We actually need work in order to flourish as human beings. Because to be a human being is also to be a vocational being uh, according to the Bible. You know, people are most alive and most fully human when we are creating, when we are restoring, when we are cultivating. You know, God, again, he put work, when, when God put work into the world, he put it into paradise. Work is not a byproduct of things going wrong and of the fall. Work came before the fall. Work is not a curse, even though it has been cursed. It is not in itself a curse. It's like oxygen. We, we have to have it. It's part of the fabric of what it means to be a human being created in the image of God. And so uh, USA Today, I don't know if you caught this, but USA Today 
I think it was either this past week or the week before, came out with an article about senior citizens. And, and it talks about how more senior citizens than ever today are saying no to retirement. They're saying no to, to the ceasing of all work, uh, particularly when they are able-bodied. And there are two reasons USA Today says that, 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 that senior citizens are uh, are continuing to work. One is for financial reasons, and the other is because of a passion that they have to keep working, to experience meaning through work, to contribute through work. Or you could go to the younger population. You could go to, um, you know, you could look at children. There's a reason why crayons and Legos will never go out of style. They will never go out of style because little children, it's, it's built in them to know that it's part of my purpose to create, to build, and sometimes to destroy and, and rebuild. You know, bef- long before children are put to work, they get to work because that's how they're made. So work is like oxygen. We need it to flourish. Another thing that we can pull out of this is it's not just souls that are spiritual. The material world is also a deeply spiritual thing. This is why creation care is is an incredibly important aspect of Christian discipleship. We're not supposed to exploit the world. We're supposed to to nurture it and cultivate it and, 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 and protect it and care for it and be stewards of it, not to exploit it for selfish gain. Because it's not just the soul that is spiritual. All creation is spiritual. That's why we put people, places, and things in our our vision statement. Our our mission as a church is to follow Christ in his mission of loving people, places, and things to life. We think, well, that sounds weird, but it's not weird. John 3.16, God so loved the world. You know what the original word there is for world? Cosmos. The whole creation, everything God made on days one, two, three, four, five, and six, water, earth, sky, people, places, things. God so loved the cosmos. God so loved the material world. God so loved everything and everyone that he gave his only begotten son. You know, each and every day after God created stuff, this was long before humans came into the picture, each and every day God saw what he had made and declared this is Good. Do we need any other reason to be responsible with the environment and with the world and with, with, with creation and with the material world? It's part of what it means to be a disciple. There's no, biblically, there's no bifurcation between the spiritual and material. Okay, the next thought is that every good vocation is also a God vocation. I won't belabor this because I've, I've already taught this ad nauseum to you, and this is why we, we, you know, created the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work out of Christ Pres and launched it out of Christ Pres. Because every good, we want everybody to know, especially believers in Christ, to know that every good vocation is also a God vocation. We are all his, part of his staff, commissioned to go out into the world to leave people, places, and things better than we found them, to love them all to life. 
You know, I've said this before, if you're a parent, then, then you are imaging the nurture and discipline of God to your children. If you're an artist or an entrepreneur, the creativity of God. If you're in government or if you're an executive, the lordship and reign of God. If you're an accountant, the orderliness, because he does everything decently and in order. And there's a whole book in the Bible called Numbers, so God loves Numbers. If you're in healthcare, the healing hands of God. If you're an attorney, a judge, or in law enforcement, the justice of God. If you're in education, the wisdom and mind of God. Social work, the mercy of God. Construction, the, the fact that God is an architect and a builder. Sanitation, you're affirming that everything is very good by taking care of it and cleaning it up. Fashion, uh, you're, you're affirming the beauty of God and how God loves and makes beautiful things. If you're an investment banker, you're creating new wealth, new jobs, new opportunity for more flourishing. So we ought to always be rethinking missions. You know, like Missy Wallace likes to say, God doesn't have an A team and a B team vocationally. It's like Luther said, the humblest made sweeping for the glory of God is infused with just as much dignity as the greatest preacher in the world. You know, a friend of mine from New York City, um, you know, talked about, you know, how the light bulb went on for him in, in his job with Sloan Kettering, uh, which, which is one of the world, you know, centers for, for, you know, curing cancer and cancer research. And he was a hospital administrator. And as a Christian, he started to doubt whether or not his, his job as an administrator had anything to do with the mission and purposes of God. Until he heard a sermon from Tim Keller, and in that sermon, he, he realized, it dawned on him, the light bulb went on, that by, by being the administrator, by being the administration and working in the administrative offices of a hospital, I, too, am working to cure cancer. It's just like the janitor said to President Kennedy before they, they launched the first rocket, you know, pre- President Kennedy said to him, What's your name and what are you doing here? And the the janitor said, I'm doing the same thing that you're doing here, sir. I'm launching a rocket. I'm putting a man on the moon. There's no A team. There's no B team. Your work is no less significant. It's no less spiritual than my work. It's really important that you know that. Work is spiritual. It's also war. You know, if we go to Genesis chapter 3, two chapters to the right, you know, we see that the ground has been cursed and work has been cursed. And, and, and work now involves things like sweat and thorns and toil and, you know, like Gift said, thousands and thousands of chiggers uh, if we go work in the woods, right? Romans 8 affirms this. All creation experiences a groan. And it says that we too, as part of creation, groan because the world has, you know, is under this dark cloud called the curse because we decided that we wanted to try to live independently of God. That's just a long way of defining the word sin. We decided we wanted to live independently of God and God says, okay, we will see how that works out for you. Because when you, when you try to engage the world without me in the center of your engagement, 
Everything, work, relationships, and the ground itself is going to be tainted and corrupted. This is the reason behind the the results from the recent Gallup poll that says that 85% of people who work are unhappy in their work. It's like a terrible joke, isn't it? We all need to work. You know, crayons and Legos will never go out of style. You know, we never never don't feel that that impulse to do something meaningful and, and, and contribute. It's a terrible joke. We need to work, and, and, and most people hate their work. If you've seen the movie Office Space, there's this guy, <laughs> there's this guy named Peter. And Peter is, you know, sort of the, the, um, you know, the picture of a, of a demotivated employee. And uh, a couple of consultants come in uh, to the organization, and they're meeting with all the different employees. They're both named Bob. They're, they're, they're called the Bobs. And the Bobs ask Peter, you know, to tell them about his typical workday. And he says, well, I think on the average workday, I, well, spend most of the time spacing out in front of my computer. And I think probably in the average given week, I work about 15 minutes of total actual work. And then they said, oh, we're intrigued by that. Unpack that a little bit. He says, well, Bob, Bob, it's not that I'm lazy. I just don't care. It's not that I'm lazy. I just don't care. Work that has been corrupted by the fall has this demotivating feature about it. And one of the things that was going on in, in office space also is all over the world of work. It's hard to trust other people. And so why try? You know, there's been this erosion of character in the workplace, and, and it's more common than not common for things like obfuscation, spin, self-centered ambition, lies, you know, internal competition, those things are more common than they are rare in work environments. And so, so Hugh Hecklow wrote this book called On Thinking Institutionally. And, and basically his theory is that since the Enlightenment, there has been gradually a chipping away and an erosion of trust in virtually every vocational sphere. And some of the examples he gives uh, he, he talks about business and he says there's, there's things like the Enron scandal or, or the Madoff scandal or, or the subprime mortgage crisis in 2008. And he says the same is true in government. Trust is at an all-time low. We've got a history there. Eisenhower with the U-2 spy plane, Kennedy with the Bay of Pigs, Nixon with Watergate, Reagan with Iran-Contra scandal, Clinton with infidelity. It's hard to trust anymore. This is true in places of worship. You've got sex and abuse scandals galore in both Protestant and Catholic communions. But what's the purpose of the scattered church when it comes to this erosion of of, of trust? We are supposed to go out into the world and and, and wage a counter-erosion movement together. Following Christ in his mission in our places of work, to serve our work so as to love people, places, and things to life. What does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things. I don't have time 
to unpack it all, but, but one thing it especially means is that we are supposed to wage war against our own self-interest. When we go to work, it's like every other part of life. Our fundamental purpose is to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Work is a, a sphere in which to love God by, doing the, by working our hardest, no matter where we are on the, the org chart, because we recognize the dignity and importance and centrality of work in Christian discipleship, and to, to, to love our neighbor as ourself. In other words, to seek to, to serve our work and the, the people that are involved with our work rather than to merely be served by it. And the Scriptures draw, you know, sort of parameters around what this looks like by forbidding things that are so common in the workplace today, by forbidding things like false weights and measures and lying and unjust wages and abuse, all, all of which are different strategies to, to use your work, to exploit your work in order to serve yourself. The Bible says, you know, as the scattered church, as Christians out in the world of work and vocation, we're called to the opposite. In the same way that Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, came not to be served but to serve. And it also encourages servant leadership. So, so Jim Collins uh, has written a great book. It's a, it's a blockbuster, bestseller, good to great. Uh, uh, I'm sure that you've, you've read that one. And, uh, and in there, he talks about several levels of leadership. And he says the top level of leadership is what he calls level five leadership. And these are the most successful executives. And Colin says the level five leaders, the most successful executives are humble, self-effacing. They give away credit for success and they, they t put the blame on themselves for failure. There's this humility aspect and this servant leader aspect. You know, there are a lot of times where I'll, I'll actually meet newcomers to our church and, and I'll ask them, you know, what, what got you here? How, why did you come to Christ Pres? And, and their answer will be, my boss. She cares about me. She respects me and believes in me. My boss, I trust him. I know that he wants my very best. He invests in me. You, know, you don't have to be a leader, by the way, to, 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 on the org chart. To, you don't have to be at the top of the org chart or toward the top of the org chart to, to, to have impact. You can lead from the bottom as well by blooming where you're planted. I mean, Joseph did it in prison. You know, the later chapters of Genesis would encourage you to read chapters 37 through 50 about how Joseph flourished and got promoted to the courts of Pharaoh to become prime minister of Egypt, which started by being a great prisoner. After he had been unjustly incarcerated, he became a, an, a, an exceptional prisoner. And that was his starting point to, to, to rise to, to his point of leadership. Or there's, there's Daniel. Same thing happened with Daniel in, in, in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. You know, he... he he took what had been given him and, 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 and he cultivated it and he nurtured it and he, he did his very best with what he had and, and he got recognized and, and you know, became one of the key leaders in Babylon. And I shared with you all a, a few weeks ago about my friend John Tyson, who's a pastor in New York City now, and he talks about how um, when, he, when he was in the meatpacking business, he, he was converted to Christianity and, and he, he 
worked even harder, and, and you know, because of this you know, vocational vision for discipleship, he, he worked even harder uh, and, and contributed even more value to his meatpacking company as a worker, but, but he made it known that he'd become a Christian, and this was why he was working harder. And, and when his boss found out that he'd become a Christian, he started bullying him. And he just kept keeping his head down, working hard, adding value, keeping his head down, working hard, adding value. And eventually, he, he quit the job, moved on, and later on, he had an encounter with his boss, and his boss had told him, I've become a Christian too. And he says, we both, we both remember, no doubt, how I tried to make your life miserable after I found out you became a follower of Jesus Christ. And he said, yeah, I do remember that. And he said, I want you to know it's because of you. It's because of the way that you responded to my bullying that I am now part of the family of God too, and I am so sorry. You never know what God's going to do. You never know. You know, parents, when, when your kids don't listen to you, it seems like they, unless Beyonce says it, they're, not, they're never going to be on board. You know, it's true for pastors. We can preach our guts out and 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 there can be like a no response, or at least it seems that way, until somebody gets lost in the woods and 10% of your church shows up and you realize, oh my goodness, they are listening. You don't know what God's doing, and so keep at it. And finally, finish line here, the work is finished. And this is our basis for working hard, by the way. This is, this is our basis for doing our best even when we're Joseph in jail. The work has already been finished. Your identity has been established. And by the way, that work that's been finished is, is completely amazing. On the cross, Jesus Christ finished the work by saying the word to tell us thy. It means it is finished. It's complete. It's done. This is why Jesus can say in Matthew 11, come to me. Long before he says, go for me. Your basis for going for me is that you've come to me, and when you come to me, you realize that the only way you've come to me is that I've come to you first, that I so love, that I gave. And then there's this, this picture of Sabbath that we're given in Genesis where it says God rests. He rests on the seventh day after the six days of creation. But what's remarkable here, and we can easily miss it if we're not looking carefully, the, first, the last day of God's week, the day of rest, is the first day of Adam and Eve's week. God works toward rest. Human beings rest toward work. What God says to Adam and Eve before the Sabbath day, though, is really gorgeous. Every day except the sixth day, God looks at what he's made and he says it's good. After the sixth day, he says which is where he created humans, Adam and Eve, he says, oh, what I've made, it's gorgeous. What I've made is very good. It's superlative. It's, you know, Psalm 8, crown of creation stuff, a little less than God. This is the first time that the gospel was preached directly to human beings. That you get the well done before you do a single bit of work. The well done is already pronounced over you before you do a thing. You rest in that as your identity. And then you go out and work your guts out wherever God puts you. 
and you feel God's pleasure as you do it. You become part of the 15% in the Gallup poll, no matter where you are on the org chart, because you know why you're doing what you're doing and for whom you're doing what you're doing. Also remarkable is this. You know, say you're like Peter in office space, and it's not that you're lazy, it's just that you don't care. You just don't feel like you're accomplishing anything. Here's the beautiful thing about that movie. I think there's a little gospel even in that movie created by the founders of Beavis and Butthead. (laughs) There's still some gospel in there because in the end, he, he finds another job where he's digging ditches at a construction site and he's filled with joy and filled with peace and filled with meaning. It takes the eyes of faith to find meaning in any kind of work, whether you're a CEO, professional athlete, a stage musician, or digging ditches like Peter. It takes the same faith that Isaiah needed to have when, you know, he says, here I am, here am I, send me, and God says, okay, here's your job. You're going to be a preacher, and nobody's going to listen to you, and everybody's going to reject you, and eventually they're going to saw you in two. And he did it anyway, wrote some of the most beautiful poetry ever written in the history of the world, knowing that he would never see the fruit of it in his lifetime. Or Jesus Christ, regarded by all of his peers as a professional failure. Even after his resurrection, there are over 500 people still living who were eyewitnesses of of his resurrection, of him coming up from the dead, and he only had 120 followers. 500 eyewitnesses, and 120 followers. He dies in his early 30s, labels as an enemy of the state. And yet here we are, bearing the fruit of Isaiah's and Jesus Christ's great success that they were not able to fully taste in their own lifetimes except by faith. Okay, so I'm out of time. Uh, and I want to invite you to stand with me, Uh, and we're going to affirm the Apostles' Creed as Pastor David comes forward to serve us the Lord's Supper. also want to encourage you to go home and read this whole book, Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller and Catherine Alsdorf. Uh, it's, a, it's a glorious book, uh, and it will, you know, what I've done is just give you an appetizer. That, that, that whole book will give you the feast, Every Good Endeavor. But uh, now let's turn our attention uh, to the Lord and our shared confession of faith. Daughters and sons of God, what do you believe? I believe in God, the, the Father, Father Almighty, Almighty maker, maker of heaven and earth, and, earth, and in, in Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.